Our scripture reading for the sermon is from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please be seated. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit, soften our hearts that we might delight in your presence, sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth, shape our wills that we may desire your ways, through Christ our Lord, amen. There's a name that uh, may be unfamiliar to you. It was to me up until a few years ago, and I'm continually reminded of the name of Walter Marshall. And the reason it's an unfamiliar name to many of you is that he was an English nonconformist Puritan pastor in the 17th century. <laughs> That's why. You, many of you have not heard of Walter Marshall but he wrote a book that has had a lasting impact. And in preparing that book and explaining why he wrote it, remember this was a pastor who pastored a congregation, who listened to his people and who walked beside them, wrote these words in explaining his book. May God bless my discovery of the powerful means of holiness so far as to save some from killing themselves. <laughs> that's how, that's what he was speaking into, the plight and the frustration and the agony of men and women who were so overwhelmed with their inability to get to first base spiritually that they were on the edge of a cliff. Brian Chapel is one who has introduced me again to Walter Marshall, and he writes this. Pastor Marshall was grieving as he wrote those words. People in his church despairing that they would never obtain the spiritual maturity and victory for which they longed. Despite their continual striving for holiness, felt unable to escape sinful habits and patterns of thought. Their despair was becoming more acute as they realized that years of battling, praying, and grieving over sin did not seem to break their bondage. Sin had not become less troublesome in their lives, nor less burdensome to their hearts. Those words may not precisely capture where you are or where you've been. But they come close. If, you, if you've been 
at this thing called the Christian life for a while. And I realize some of you may be not, not the case, but you're investigating this. But you're stepping in, visitors among us today, into a conversation that we have with ourselves, and we invite you into it today. You see, we head out and, and, and then collapse under the weight of, of things that seem to be too heavy for us to carry or able, able to, to manufacture in our lives. Um, and we may have never reached the edge of the cliff like some of Pastor Marshall's people seem to have reached, but we know the frustration. And as he writes that book and prays that prayer, he writes to suggest that there is, in the midst of that struggle, and that's what it is, there's cause for hope. There is a cause for hope that, that he unpacks in his work, just like Paul in Galatians is unfolding and unpacking our cause for hope. There is real cause for hope. If you've been with us in this still short series on Galatians week 13, but still short, ex adventure into this book of Galatians, you will have found with us cause for hope. You will have discovered that there's things about our status before God that do not change. Now, there's some cause for hope right there. You ready to go home? <laughs> our status does not change. We've heard that as Paul unfolds Galatians. He says that God sent his son, that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. There's an attitude that led to an action. God loved me and gave himself for me. And that is something that is unchangeable. And that's why we've gathered here again today. That God in Christ has done something profound and enduring and permanent. In Galatians 3, we read, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's cause for hope right there. Our status does not change. But there's another reason that Paul gets to now at the end in chapter 5 where we are today. It's not only that our status does not change, but that our ability does. That was introduced last week when we together considered, actually I was in North Carolina, when you considered the power of the gospel that transforms lives. That's a theme that we talk about a lot around here. That there's a power of the gospel that is not just information, but it's a transforming power that changes us from the inside out. And we were reminded of that last week in Galatians 5, that power of the gospel and that freedom that is ours. But even that passage concludes with a warning about using freedom, you may remember, as an opportunity for the flesh and with the prospect of believers... Are you ready? Dividing, biting, devouring, dividing, and consuming one another. <laughs> That's the prospect that Paul addresses. The, the, that can and does happen. 
where we, where we find ourselves at each other's heels. There's things that, that can occur if we're not aware of that danger. And then Paul says, as our text this morning begins with, but I say, and that's where we are. Paul goes on to say that there is a way through the struggle. There's a way through the struggle that rages inside the human heart and we grow in character as we battle. That's what this passage before us is about. Paul uses some language that will be familiar to some of you before, previously where he talks about walking in the Spirit. And for the time that we have, that's our topic. That's our, that's our target today, this walking in the Spirit. And we're gonna, for the time that we have, we're going to look at what does that mean? What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Why is it important? And then finally, how do we do that? Paul tells us what it means, and he gives us some handles with the words that he chooses in verse 16 and 18 when he says, walk by the Spirit. Now, maybe that's a given. Walking by the Spirit means walk, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, that's not rocket science. But, but think about this. Walking in the Spirit, walking anywhere, any kind of walking has a beginning. There is a commencement there is a walk that occurs, and it begins when you come into the Christian faith, when you're brought into the Christian faith by faith. A new life, a new heart, a new ambition, a new purpose. There's a walk. And that's language, actually, that Paul particularly uses as a metaphor of the Christian life. It's very similar to, to Jesus' words about following me, following him and walking are, are words that the New Testament uses to give us a picture of just what this is. It's not something merely that we have chosen to believe, but it is, is a life that we're called into. And I, when our beliefs and our walk begin to fit together, we're getting close to what the New Testament and the Old Testament too, by the way, have in mind of a people of faith. Walk, Paul says. It has a beginning. And in this world, we never arrive we are walking, we are en route, we don't sit, we walk, we put one foot in front of the other, and that means perpetually going, moving out in a direction and on purpose. That's the picture that we're called to. It's a walking. But it's not just any walking, it's walking by the Spirit. And what does that mean? So we got the walking part down. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Well, a chapter earlier in verse, chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says that God has sent, God, past tense, has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. He's writing to the church, and if you are following Christ, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. It's what... Jesus says, it's, it's parallel to what Jesus says when he says, I will send a helper. I will send you a helper. You're not alone. You not only have one another, but you have me. 
that the spirit of his son is sent into our hearts. And Paul in Ephesians says, with that spirit, you are sealed to the day of redemption as a, as a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The spirit is on board. To walk by the spirit is to walk in step with the spirit, the one who is resident in us that it's not merely us alone, but we have a helper, an ally in the battle. I've not done a lot of mountain climbing. I have done some, but not with, not with all the gear that it takes to climb mountains. I, st- I tend to stick on the trails. But, but there have been places west of the Mississippi where I realized I needed to stop and catch my breath. Because I've come from the flatlands, and here I am in the Rocky Mountains, and I cannot keep up with my sister who lives there. I can't keep up with her. I need to catch my breath. Well, if it's true there, what's it like in the Himalayas? And you've seen pictures or seen movies. Some of you may have even been but they've learned something about hiking above tree line in the Himalayas. And that is you don't go past a certain distance without oxygen supplies. In fact, the Sherpas who plan your trek and arrange for everything, they go ahead before you get there. And they, and they stock the supply of oxygen that you're going to need when you get past a certain point. And so at a point, you, take a, you, you lay down the empty container and you pick up a new container of oxygen that may help you get to the peak. There's a supply there. There's a provision there. And you could choose to bypass that provision. But if you do, we will be reading about you. <laughs> Or you will turn around within the next hundred yards. There's a supply there. There is a provision there. And that's what Paul is telling us about our walk in this world. To walk in the spirit in this world is to walk with the provision and the supply and the helper and the seal and the person of the spirit who is at, who's taken up residence in your life. To walk in the spirit is to not walk alone. But we get another handle on this as we keep reading. In verse 18, Paul uses another phrase. It's not walk in the, by the spirit, it's what? Be led by the Spirit. And these are either two very closely linked ideas or two ways about speaking of the same thing. Paul twice speaks about being led by the Spirit right here and in Romans 8 that we read earlier, you may have noted, where he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. They're at least linked together, if not two ways of saying the same thing. To walk by the Spirit, though, is an active part, right? That's something that you do. That's a choice that you make. Those, that shows up. That's, that's an action 
on our part to be led. Well, there's a little passive note there, isn't there? Even the mood of the word is be led. You're not leading here. You're being led. So there's an action and there's an activity and a passivity. And the reality is that we live at the intersection of our spiritual activity and that of the Spirit. Okay, that's sounding familiar to some of you. Because in Philippians 2, we would read, My beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is that God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So which is it? It's both. And we live at the intersection of working out our salvation because it is God who works in you. Walk in the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit, and they come together. B.B. Warfield was a theologian at Princeton Seminary in the late 19th, early 20th century, and he seems to have landed this one clearly. When he writes about the Holy Spirit, it is the Holy Spirit's part to keep us in the path and to bring us at length to the goal. But it is we who tread every step of the way. Our limbs grow weary with the labor. Our heart that faints. Our courage that fails. Our faith that revives our sinking strength. Our hope that instills new courage into our souls as we toil over every steep ascent. It is both. It is the Spirit's job to get us there. And he does and he will. But is our activity of walking, and that's what Paul is getting at, to walk in the Spirit. Why is it important? Well, we see that at the end of verse 16 and all of verse 17, where Paul drills deep. We're going to do a deep dive here with Paul. Because he says, the reason that this is important is that you will not, so that you will not, the purpose is that you will not carry out or gratify the desires of the flesh. There is something that will not occur when we are walking, being led by the Spirit. Uh, it's, we need to see it's important for two reasons. One is the nature of the struggle, and the second is the effect of the Spirit. The first, the nature of the struggle. The nature of the struggle is seen in the strength of those desires. There's a strength there that's, that's beyond the word that, that we read here about desires is translated lust in some old translations. Desires and lust both seem to really miss what that word is about because it's an, it's an intensified word. It's the word for desire with a prefix added to it that, that magnifies it. It's desires on steroids or over-desires. We've talked about that before. That's, that's a good way to understand what Paul is getting at, the over-desires of the flesh. It's not just that, 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 that there's a desire, it's a desire gone wrong. It's a, it's a desire that's been elevated in significance and importance. And you know what some of those are like. It's the desires that don't let go, that you can't talk yourself out of, that, that offer something that they can't deliver, but they're powerful. That's what he's getting at. David Pallison writing says, 
If idolatry is the characteristic summary Old Testament word for our drift from God, then desires, this Greek intensified word for desires, is the characteristic and summary New Testament word for that same drift from God. The New Testament merges, he says, the concept of idolatry and the concept of inordinate, life-ruling desires like lust, craving, yearning, and greedy demand. His partner, Ed Welch, says, I want is the song of the human heart. <laughs> that's the desires he's talking about here. That's, what, that's why this is important to learn how to walk in the Spirit is because those desires are strong, and I don't need to convince you of that. You see, when I'm afraid, I look to the idol of money to give me security. When I, am, when I want pleasure, I look to the idols of food, sex, or sleep. And the problem is that I, we never quite feel like we have enough, and so we want more. That's the over-desire. That's the strength of our desire. That's, that's part of the nature of the struggle. It's a strong desire. But there's also a ground to the struggle that's important to grasp. You see, this is not something inside of us, flesh, versus something outside of us, spirit. That's how we tend to think because when we use the word flesh, typically we usually mean something physical, of a physical nature. That's what it sounds like. That's, that's fleshly. That's of the flesh. Those are sinful, uh, physical desires. But, but that's a wedge that the Bible does not draw. The word flesh translates a Greek word that really refers sometimes to that, but more times than not to your fallen nature, to my fallen nature. Or think of it this way. I found this helpful. The part of you that is yet unredeemed, that part of your nature that has not undergone that transforming power of the gospel, and that's all of us. We come into this and there's no magic button. There's no formula. There's no instantaneous transformation into the new person. That will come in days ahead, in the, in the world to come. But between now and then, there is a part of you that is yet unrenewed in me. It's, the, it's what the Bible calls my old nature. It's who I was before God broke in. Part of that is still here. In fact, a lot of it is still here. And yet God has broken in and begun to renew from the inside out portions of our hearts and lives from the inside, our soul being renewed. But there's a part of me that is yet to be changed and transformed, and it is strong. It's still kicking. It's been crucified, but it's kicking, and it is powerful. And those are the desires of the flesh, and, where the, and the ground of the struggle is between that which is new and that which is yet to be new in us. There are two natures at work, and every Christian has been said, the spirit and the sinful nature. The spirit meaning, in this case, not the Holy Spirit. It's the part of you that has been made new, the new spirit at any one point in our life, we will live by one and not gratify the other. Um, I found this helpful. It's, it's vintage Tim Keller, so 
uh, listen to this and how he unpacks this. Think of those two natures as two, what he calls, semi-intact motivational systems. Now hang with me for a minute. A motivational system, he goes on to explain, is centered on a goal that the imagination finds beautiful and desirable. That's what motivates us to do anything. It's something that, that we find attractive or desirable or we become absorbed with. There's something that motivates us in a certain direction. And this motivational system generates what we perceive as needs and manufactures desires to attain them. So we could think of the conflict, the ground of the struggle, as between the sin-desiring and the God-desiring aspects of who we are. It explains why we may find prayer so boring and sin so fascinating. That's the ground of the struggle. That's why it's important to learn how to walk in the Spirit, not only because of the nature of the struggle, but here's where the help comes. It's from the effect of the Spirit. There's an effect, effect of the Spirit. And the first one is the influence that He exerts. You know, that object is stationary. The physics, there's laws of physics, and I've forgotten what they are. There's laws of physics that describe that that, most, that object will, will remain motionless until some force, you know what it is, don't you? Until some force is exerted on that object to move it. And that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit of God acts on my stationary heart to move in a Godward direction. Ezekiel says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He gives us, you see, a new nature and new passions we read about here and a new character we're going to see in the, in the end of chapter 5. That's the influence that he exerts. But it's not just influence. And this is where it, it goes three steps forward. It's not merely influence. It's not the influence that he exerts. It's the blow that he delivers. That spirit that influences your, your motivations and gives you something lovely to pursue delivers a blow. And we see that in verse 17. That the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit are at odds with each other, keeping you from doing what you want to do until the spirit of God delivers you through that. One commentator says the leading of the Spirit is this. It's that constant effective influence which the Holy Spirit exercises when the hearts, within the hearts of God's children, whereby they are being directed and enabled more and more to, get this, to crush the power of indwelling sin and to walk in the way of God's commandments freely and cheerfully. The desires of the flesh, you see, are still there, but they're no longer predominant, but they are powerful, but they are no longer reigning, and that's the new ability that you have. John Piper put it like this, the spirit has landed to do battle with the flesh, 
That's good news, by the way. The Spirit has landed to do battle with the flesh. Take heart if your soul feels like a battlefield at times. The sign of whether you are indwelt by the Spirit is not that you have no bad desires, but that you are at war with them. And as you walk in the Spirit and recognize the nature of the struggle and the effect of the Spirit, you, that's why you would then say, even as you sin, I don't want this. I find myself doing this, but I don't want this. I want to want the will of God. That's the work of the Spirit, to help you see something that is more lovely and more beautiful than the tendencies of your fallen nature and the, and the patterns that you've built up over time. And me. The effect of the Spirit is the influence he exerts, and it's the blow that he delivers. So how do we do this? Well, this is borrowing from not only this passage, but things that Scripture says elsewhere about this whole deal. Pulling together the threads on sanctification, and, in, and it would, would include these. Recognize the necessity of holiness. Hebrews 12 reads, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I need to recognize that this is important. That while my status will never change and I have put on Christ and it is his righteousness that is given to me, he has then called me into a life of fidelity and a life of the, that is transformed by the gospel, transformed and showing marks and evidences of holiness in my life. And there's movement in that direction. That's the first step, to recognize the necessity. Then, nurture a longing for holiness. Many of us are pretty quick to wave the white flag. Or another way of saying it is to throw in the towel. Or to maybe even give up. Hopeless. I've been trying to change this for how many years? And I'm still critical. And I'm still selfish. I need to, I need to create and nurture a longing for holiness that says that's not where God wants me. That's not where I want to be. That's how the psalmist puts it in 119. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your ways before me. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. That's a picture. That's a picture of someone who wants something that has yet to occur. And then third, we need to admit our inability to get there on our own. And I don't need to persuade you of that. Paul says it this way in verse 17. These things are ordered to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And I can't get there on my own. I need to recognize the necessity, nurture a longing, admit my inability, and then I need to take up the activity of walk. Let's go back to that word for a second. Present tense. Always walking. Moving out. Never, there's never a moment where this is not in play. Always walking. An active voice. I've already addressed that one. It is the role that I have, not passive. It's, that is not something that happens to you. And it's an imperative mood. There's a choice and an urgency that goes with it. 
Uh, we see this compelling picture that Paul gives us in Romans 6 where he says, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That we might walk. That we might walk in newness of life. That's a promise of the gospel. Some of you are worn out from trying to be yourself. There's a new life that you're called into. It's one that, that, that the God who made this world and who designed you makes for you. It's a life, it's a character, it's a posture, it's a hope. And you don't have to go searching for that. It comes to you in Christ. Take up the activity of walking. And then fix your gaze, finally, on the riches of God's grace. Sinclair Ferguson says, God never throws us back to rely upon ourselves and our own resources. He encourages us, rather, to grow up as Christians by digging down ever more deeply into the riches of his grace in Jesus Christ. So get out your shovel. Open this word. Ask the Spirit of God to show you things that you will not see until he does show you about the riches that are yours in Christ. And as you dig those riches out and as they mount up, as they pile up in front of you, then take a glance at the desire of the flesh. Oh, it's still strong. It's still there. But it diminishes when you see with clarity the beauty and the magnificence of what is offered you in the gospel. I listened to uh, somebody talking about a Jonathan Edwards sermon yesterday um, on my phone. And Jonathan Edwards, as some of you learned in the 10th grade, you know, was known for how he would talk and preach about the wrath of God. But the whole story is that no one taught more about the beauty of Christ, the, the lavish love of Christ, in addition to the realities of, of, of a God who is just and, and, and righteous in his ways. And they were describing the diary of Jonathan Brainerd, his son-in-law, Something Brainerd, is it Jonathan? David Brainerd, David Brainerd. And David, who was a missionary to the Indians, was describing the, the transforming power of the gospel in their lives. And the descriptions were not about what would happen to them if they didn't turn to Christ. It wasn't the peril of judgment and hell. It was the beauty of the gospel. Tears being wept by seeing more vividly the person and the work of Jesus Christ for them 
who loved them and gave himself for them. That's transforming. And when that is vividly on display before you by the work of the Spirit, when you are walking in the Spirit, when you are being led by the Spirit, where does he lead you? He leads you to Christ. Do you know the best way to understand the work and the responsibility of the Holy Spirit is that he is a spotlight. He is a spotlight and he shines that spotlight not on himself and not on you. Though he is at work and he will expose things, but he shines that spotlight on the finished work of Christ. And as he shines that spotlight on the finished work of Christ, what takes shape in your mind's eye and in your heart is something lovely and beautiful and transforming and absorbing. To walk in the Spirit is to be absorbed with Christ. And you will not get there on your own. There are things that you will do. It is I who read my Bible. I dig for the hidden treasures and the beauty of the riches that are for mine in Christ. But it is the Spirit of God, walking in the Spirit, who opens the eyes of my heart to see what I would not see until he does. And as he leads me, he leads me to the gospel, to Christ, and I'm absorbed. And the desires of the flesh are loosened and weakened in the light and the beauty of something far more compelling, far more absorbing, far more endless, and, so, and far more beautiful than any desires I could ever imagine in this world. So walk by the Spirit because it's important and because the result is transforming. I have a feeling that Pastor Marshall had Psalm 119, verse 32 in mind, which reads, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my hearts. As, as he wrote these words, so instead of killing themselves, <laughs> I pray that God will enlarge the hearts of many by this work to run with great cheerfulness, joy, and thanksgiving in the way of his commandments. And he leads us there. He takes us there. That's where we find our life. That's where we find our joy. Let's pray. Father, we are inclined to look for life and joy in so many places. And we would ask that you would seal to our hearts the truth of the gospel again today and stretch our imaginations to see with clarity and reality the things that you reveal to us through your word. Christ, who gave his life for us because he loved us. 
We thank you. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.